Sangha. How's, how's that for sound? You can hear me in back? Great. So, first I just want to take in all of your wonderful effort today. I know you all worked hard. And I just want to deeply appreciate all your efforts. And actually, tonight, the subject of my talk is right effort. How many of you think that you were able to maintain right effort all day? Let's see it. Come on. Own it. (laughs) That's great. That's great that that was an intention in your mind. That's part of it is holding the intention for right effort. It's absolutely part of it. So what is right effort? You know, one thing uh, I learned or maybe was reminded of when I was doing the, um, you know, just preparing this talk is that, uh, you know, we come on retreat and we know that it's not a vacation, right? We know that we're not on vacation. But did we know that we were coming to a month of like the biggest loser training? (laughs) We've come to the biggest loser of defilements training. We're training the mind. We have come here to do some work, to engage in training. And uh, that's what right effort points to, is that, um, that the suttas, particularly, I think, the Majjhima Nikaya, according to what I read, the middle-length discourses talk about laying the foundation for the training that leads to enlightenment. It's training our heart-mind that leads to awakening. And we've all set that intention. So one of the first elements in looking at right effort, if we're engaged in the correct amount of effort, is to look at what what our motivation is. You know, Guy talked very beautifully on the first night about whether we're practicing for regular human happiness or whether we're practicing for the ultimate in peace. And that's one reflection that we have. We can reflect on really what our intention is. And reflecting on our intention is a, an assessment maybe of our faith, our confidence in our ability either to be happy, do we really think we can be happy, that we deserve to be happy, and that this training will lead to happiness? Or are we undecided and unconfident that we could really um, accomplish that? In the Majjhima, it says that if we are undecided or unconfident, we suffer from, from wilderness in the heart. We have a wilderness in the heart. The second reflection that allows us to water the seeds of our appropriate intention, of our very wholesome intention, is to understand the impact of karma. Karma. We all really do get what we deserve in some sense, either in this life or in another. We all do get what we deserve. And applying it to you know, recent life, I 
I think that we're going to get the president that we deserve. <laughs> it's kind of sad to think that. <laughs> I don't know. So understanding karma, that when we act from uh, wholesome intentions, and it's really all about the intentions, isn't it? It doesn't even really matter, you know, in the world of uh, diversity and racial understanding, there's definitely a distinction between intention and impact. And that's hugely important. But in the world of karma, it really is all about what our intention is. Is our intention, uh, is our intention, um, does it come from friendliness, benevolence, from compassion, from appreciative joy or equanimity? Does it come from one of the ten paramis? Or is it fueled by the, you know, hundreds of manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion? You know, understanding and reflecting on that is a motivation for, for us to uh, look at our level of effort. And then finally, impermanence is thought to be an excellent reflection for um, improving our effort. How long do we really have? You know, we're either at the front of the line or the back of the line but we're all in line, you know? Our time is very limited, and we never know how much time we have. So reflection on impermanence and about just not knowing how long we have to practice can also improve our sense of urgency or ardency for practice, and it will uh, reflect and water uh, water, right effort, and lead us to getting really serious about this training that we're doing. So I want to talk about one sutta. There's one sutta in the Majjhima where uh, the Buddha and Ananda are out, and the Buddha is... Uh, giving a talk to the Sakyas, which I think are the fancy people back in those days, the Sakyas. And um, it's interesting because it says in the Sutta that the Buddha started the talk, but then he actually got a backache. So it's interesting that, you know, we still see, uh, you know, the beautiful expressions of the historical Buddha's humanness, that he got a backache and he wanted to relax. And he knew how to take care of himself. He, you know, compassion for himself arose and he said, I'm not finishing that talk. Ananda, you go finish that talk. Isn't that nice? The Buddha said, I'm taking a rest. So Ananda went to uh, finish the talk to the um, Sakyas. And, uh, you know, the Buddha was really listening, wanted to hear what Ananda would say. So... uh, The talk was about training, and right effort is really about training. And Ananda uh, went on to tell the Sakyas, he told them about 12 areas that a person in higher training has mastered. So I would say a month retreat is higher training. Let's all consider that we are in higher training. And these are the things that we really want to pay attention and, um, you know, for our training to do an assessment of how well we're training in these, in these 12 things. And actually, these 12 things are absolutely, absolutely part of how we consider the four right efforts, too. But hopefully, we can weave those together. The first one is virtue. Ananda said that the first higher training for people who are uh, heading toward awakening is virtue. And we've done that training, you know, we have taken the precepts. And every day, one element of right effort might be to check in. How am I doing with the precepts? 
How am I doing with noble silence? How am I doing with uh, taking what is just offered and with, um, you know, what we're, how we're um, meaning to live together in peace and concord? You know, how we're doing our yogi jobs and whether we're able to, you know, maintain the precepts in that. Or even when we're in our rooms and close the door, you know, are we uh, engaging in um, virtuous behavior that is leading us towards awakening, creating the karma for our deeper understanding of reality? The second one is guarding the sense doors. And that's an excellent um, training to engage in and an excellent effort in actually preventing unwholesome states from arising. The next is moderation and eating, which is excellent training for um, maintaining the next one, which is wakefulness. You know, just alertness and sharpness of mindfulness. The fifth is faith in the enlightenment of the Buddha. And I found it really interesting that uh, the sutta made a, dis- made a real distinction between faith in the historical Buddha, and, you know, personally I have a lot of faith in him, I think he was the smartest person who ever lived, but it's really the sutta makes a distinction that it's faith in his awakening. And I think in that sense, really points to the fact that we all have that potential for awakening. So it's faith in our own ability to train and achieve similar outcomes. I love the next two, these next two trainings that we're supposed to be focusing our effort in. And um, I actually know the Pali terms for these. It's uh, two things called Hiri and Otapa. I'm sure many of you know what that is. It's shame of wrongdoing and fear of wrongdoing. You know, shame of wrongdoing is much different than guilt. You know, guilt is a very self-centered emotion that takes us as the center of the universe. Shame of wrongdoing is just a reflection on harm because of some, you know, manifestation of greed, hatred, and delusion, and is an appropriate reflection of, wow, I created harm in the world, and, you know, I don't feel good about that. That's not what my intention is. That's not what I want, you know, my efforts to be about. It's an appropriate reflection on harm. And then fear of wrongdoing. Um, I know a lot of us grow up with the sense of, I want to be a good person. You know, I want to be a good girl, or I want to be a good them or they, or a good person. And um, sometimes we think that this is some kind of conditioning of some religious background, but it can actually be a very wholesome quality, you know, deep-seated within us that we want to do the right thing. You know, I've met with uh, some interviews that I'm just really... It's beautiful to see how much people want to do good in the world. It really brightens my heart. It gladdens my mind and my heart. So that's a training. Fear of wrongdoing. And then learning the teachings is uh, something that we can uh, train. And part of the training is learning the teachings. And that's coming to the Dharma talks. It's, you know, many of you, I'm sure, have done that before you got here, you know, during your uh, training in either mindfulness or the Dharma, you know, the Buddha Dharma. Uh, The teachings are so incredibly valuable. Such insight into the nature of awareness of being human and just the nature of reality. The depth of it is just mind-blowing to me. And then uh, mindful remembering of the past is one uh, focus of, of a wholesome training. Wisdom about uh, rising and disappearance, wisdom about rising and passing away, a deeper understanding of the nature of reality, 
of impermanence, uh, focusing on strengthening concentration. That's a really excellent and uh, appropriate focus of our efforts in order to um, lead towards awakening and deepening our practice. So checking in, you know, how's our concentration doing? And then finally, the 12th one is abandoning unwholesome states. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap there between um, these 12 focuses of training of our effort and uh, the sixth path factor, which is um, right effort. So I have read this one... um, I want to read both um, this old Cherokee saying and a um, quote from Ajahn Chah. So this old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life. He says, a fight is going on inside me, he says to the boy. It's a terrible fight and it's between two wolves. One is evil. He has anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, and ego. He continues, the other wolf is good. He has wisdom, joy, peace, patience, serenity, determination, humility, kindness, empathy, generosity, truth, and compassion, and faith. And, you know, grandson, this fight is going on inside you, too. It's going on inside of every person, you know, in the world. The grandson thinks for a minute, and he then asks his grandfather, which wolf will win? And I'm sure many of you know what the answer is. The old Cherokee grandfather says, the one that you feed. And this is what Ajahn Chah says. Ajahn Chah says, this path consists of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, the framework for training the heart. Their true meaning is not to be found in these words, but dwells in the depth of our hearts. However, if the factors of the eightfold path are weak and timid, the defilements will possess our minds. If maga, the path, is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. It's if, the, if it's the defilements that are powerful and brave, while the path is feeble and frail, the defilements conquer our hearts. As Dharma practice develops in the heart, these two forces have to battle it out at every step of the way. It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind, but it's just the path of Dhamma and the defilement struggling to win domination of the heart. The path guides and fosters our ability to see clearly. As long as we are able to see clearly, the defilements will be losing ground. But if we are shaky, whenever defilements regroup and regain their strength, the path will be routed as defilements take its place. These two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victory and the whole affair is settled. These two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. Who do you want to bet on? Who are you investing in? What are you watering every day? I think we're always watering something. We're either watering or feeding the bad wolf or we're feeding the good wolf. So classically, we know the fourth path, I mean the sixth path factor right effort, and I love to think of the path factors are just energies, like Ajahn Chah talks about them. You know, together they're uh, really against all of the negative, unwholesome habit patterns that we have in our heart and mind. 
And uh, this sixth path factor, right effort, consists of four actions, four verbs. To prevent the arising of an unwholesome states is the first one. The second one is to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. The third one is to arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen. And the fourth is to maintain and perfect wholesome states that have already arisen. It's pretty straightforward. So let's, let's think about the first one. To prevent the arising of unwholesome states. How do we do that? What's the, you know, that's the verb, that's the, the goal. How do we accomplish that? I think the first thing is, of course, through this wonderful quality of wise attention, of uh, sati, sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. So we practice satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. And within the four foundations of mindfulness, the unwholesome mind states are actually part of what the Buddha tells us that it's very wholesome and important for us to look for or to be aware of. The five hindrances are part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So we're looking for sensual desire. And to really understand the whole manifestation of that. We think of sensual desire of maybe, of a pasna romance we could have, right? Doesn't that seem like sensual desire? Just to, you know, that we might have gotten a crush on someone that we're having some fantasies about. But it really is more than that. It's any fantasies that we have about, you know, sex, yes, of course, but also about power or about any identity that we would have about fame or wealth. You know, any desire for... just pleasures, pleasures of the flesh. And to be able to see that and to be able to, to make the mindfulness strong enough to when an object, you know, you can think of all of the five hindrances as mental objects passing through awareness and to see the arising of that object, to see it clearly and to see what happens to it, to see the nature of it. And then the second, uh, the second hindrance is ill will. And all of the manifestations of ill will. Impatience, anger, hatred. How that could arise as memories of people in our past or you know, just in reaction to some contact that we have here on the retreat that creates an unpleasant sensation associated with it. To just be aware of that and to see and to clearly name what's happening. A lot of us, you know, for whatever reason, will spin stories in our heads, not realizing that these are exactly part of what we're supposed to be aware of and to see clearly as hindrances to um, our attention. It disperses our attention and erodes our equanimity. You know, we need to engage with these thought patterns that we have. Um, if we're struggling on the cushion, if we're struggling during walking meditation or in maintaining our mindfulness, you know, we need to have a, uh, a check of all these hindrances. Is there central desire in my mind? Is there ill will in my mind? Is there dullness and drowsiness in my mind? Dullness and drowsiness might be mental, a lack of mental clarity or a shift in the clarity that we're having or physical drowsiness. Is there... Um, 
You know, are we feeling totally wiped out by after dinner or, you know, before the last sitting? To just be aware of that, you know, as a manifestation of a hindrance. The fourth hindrance, you know, um, Aaron talked really beautifully about these last night. Restlessness, restlessness and worry, monkey mind, or revisiting the past or the future. You know, incessant planning can be worrying. You know, wanting everything to go just right, really worrying about how things are going to turn out. And then finally, doubt, specifically about, you know, this path. Is this training really, uh, does it really produce what it says it produces? And am I doing this right? Do I really know how to do this? Do I have what it takes? So those are some of the things that are right in the Satipatthana Sutta for us to look at. And we look at it with our mindfulness, with our Satisampajanya. And these are the things that we can do to guard against the arising of the hindrances. We can, I love this one, we can guard the sense doors. It is so amazing to me how much money I spent, I saved when I... Uh, unsubscribed from all of the emails from the stores I like to shop at. (laughs) Have you ever tried that, to unsubscribe from things? It is really excellent guarding the sense doors. If you don't know that a sale is about to happen, it really prevents a lot of greed arising for stuff that In two months, you'll be giving away or trying to sell on eBay. (laughs) So guarding the sense stores. And what does that mean on retreat? It means that if there are, if we have a Vipassana romance or a Vipassana vendetta, we want to really guard against having a lot of contact with that person. If we're, uh, you know, maybe... Uh, really concerned about food. Maybe we don't want to get to the dining room a half an hour before they ring the bell for food. Just ways to think about guarding our sense doors against what, uh, when we come in contact with, really um, is the cause of the rising of unwholesome mental states. Paying wise attention. Sticking to what we know is right, rather than letting our mind uh, go out for stories. Or actually realizing that most of the things that we think, most of the reasons and explanations we have for things, when you think about it, they're like stick figure theories for life, right? I mean, you know, life is caused by multiple causes and conditions. I mean, the reasons why we're all here today, I mean, taking that as one thing to look at, why are we all here today? It probably goes back to karma that we have from past lives, from, you know, our ability to apply for a scholarship or have money for funding, our ability to get away, you know, loving uh, family and communities that we have that allow us to be away. And so it's just very complicated. And, you know, to think about what, you know, what it took for even Spirit Rock to be here, this mothership of, you know, Western Theravada tradition, this beautiful container, what it took for it to come to place. And we have thoughts in our mind about what we're doing here, you know, that are like stick figure theories about why things happen. We never understand the complexity of it. We should always doubt what we're thinking. I don't believe anything I think. It's really, you know, many times when I'm stuck on a thing because I understand vipalasas and distortions of uh, perception, distortions of thoughts and distortions of view, I know racism and sexism and homophobia and classism exists. I know that. And I can trace back those views to my perceptions of things. And, you know, it's a lot easier for me to let go of things that way. It's just not true. You know, uh, my teacher Joseph told me once, and I'm sure that the Sudha say this, if we're not seeing 
dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, if we're not seeing impermanence, if we're not seeing selflessness in everything, we have distorted perception. Because that's the truth of things. So paying wise attention and not believing what's going on in our head. Don't try to fix the small stuff. You know, one way I like to say this is I know I have this theory, but it really works for me. And I'm hopefully maybe it'll, it might be useful for you. You know, we have two knowledge systems. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. We have two knowledge systems. We have a conceptual, rational, uh, linear, count things, conceptual overlay, name things, You know, we have this knowledge system, which is a knowledge system that we engage in being in the world. And this is an important knowledge system. We have to have it. But we have this other knowledge system, this intuitive awareness. And intuitive awareness is not conceptual. And mindfulness is the data collection system for intuitive awareness. When we can see clearly with strong mindfulness the nature of things, when we can see, you know, the dukkha in things that we think are pleasurable, when we see the impermanence of things, when we see that we have no control over these thoughts and emotions that are arise, and, you know, this agency of self that doesn't exist, you know, and not with conceptual overlay, just seeing it clearly, this strengthens our intuitive awareness and it feeds that intuitive awareness. And that's where real insight comes from. And so when we're sitting uh, on retreat and trying to figure something out, we're thinking, well, how am I going to figure that out? How am I going to let that go? That is really not where we want to concentrate on. You know, that's what we need to let go of. We need to let go of the consistent thinking about how to get awakened. That's not going to do it. Figuring out the path to awakening and thinking with concepts, that's what we continually need to have some compassion for, for that greed of wanting something, that aversion of not wanting something, or the delusion of not knowing what the heck is going on. And just let that go and come back to just seeing, trying to see what's happening with wise attention. Does that make sense? That's how it works for me. Letting go of the concepts and going back to just extracting wisdom with mindfulness out of the experience and letting that feed intuitive awareness. So that's trying, you know, letting go of trying to fix the small stuff and letting go of trying to fix anything with thinking. You know, you could have some good thoughts like some reflections like what are my intentions in this moment? Or why don't, you know, why am I allowing myself to just have this story in my mind without looking to see if this is a hindrance in my mind? Why am I not concerned about the unwholesome storylines that I've been on for the past half a day? That's a good reflection. But to try to fix things through concepts, um, that's not useful. You know, one other way to um, prevent unwholesome mental states from arising is to be careful who you hang out with. I love that one. That's why I love my sangha so much. I love my sangha. That's why sangha is so important. You know, who are you hanging out with? I mean, we love our families, right? And we hang out with them. Oftentimes, because we practice so much, you know, we're like the smartest person and the most reliable person they can count on, right? And we love them and we will be there for them. And, you know, we make sure we have sangha to uh, hang around with people who have similar values. 
So we avoid associating with those that might lead us astray. So those are ways that we prevent unwholesome states from arising. And then what do we do once unwholesome states have arisen? So we know that the hindrances are in our mind. Well, first of all, we have to have wise intention to know that rather than to allow ourselves to just keep thinking, thinking, thinking about this thing, we you know, bring some discernment and say, is this a hindrance happening in my mind? Is this restlessness and worry? Is this doubt? Is this dullness and drowsiness? Is this greed? Is this aversion? To really look, you know, do the checklist. So having wise attention is the first thing. What else can we do once we see that unwholesome states are in our mind? We can ignore it. How do we do that? I remember once hearing a Dharma teacher, it was actually Rebecca Bradshaw. I was sitting in the three month and she said, sometimes you can have repetitive thoughts in your mind and actually put them to the back of your mind like you would hear maybe the buzzing of the refrigerator in your kitchen and then have the front of your mind be with really, you know, clarity or, um, you know, maybe uh, really um, focusing your attention on your anchor in the moment. And just let some repetitive thought go to the background. So that might be one way to ignore it. Another way to deal with unwholesome states that have arisen is to divert the mind to something else. So when your mind, you know, maybe you're uh, obsessed with something that you did in the past that you're feeling really guilty about. And guilt is not such a wholesome emotion, you know. Maybe you can divert your mind and think about just the incredible goodness that you have in your heart and mind for the fact that you're here. Or maybe, you know, recollect your goodness. You have a lot of goodness or you wouldn't be sitting in this room. Try to think of ways that you have been there for people and ways that you have lived up to your intentions for yourself. Diverting the mind to something else. And then replacing the next strategy for abandoning unwholesome states is replacing. And you, we can replace the hindrances with their opposites. We can uh, replace greed with generosity. You know, we want something, you know, we want things to be different in this moment we can reflect on the generosity of just accepting what's here, accepting, you know, the karmic, the karmic uh, cause of this condition in this moment. I mean, in a way that's being generous to ourselves by just opening to what's here and what's now. We can um, replace ill will with loving kindness. I'm going to be honest, I have a student right now who's given me a little bit of ill will. (laughs) Not a Dharma student. You know, I work at the University of Washington, and we have students that we deal with. And uh, I have been having meetings with other faculty and drawing up contracts and things, and it's amazing to me, someone who I actually at many times care very deeply about, I've had this ill will, and have just been attributing all of this negative negativity to her, greed and racism and sexism and just having all of these negative thoughts. And it's surprising to me because someplace in here I really love her. So I actually have been sitting and making her the object of metta and compassion practice and equanimity and it really has been incredibly helpful. It helps me reconnect with that feeling I know is in here of my, you know, really high regard for her. Somewhere in here, it's there. And when we do this practice, it helps us connect with that. So uh, replacing is really very helpful. Reflecting. Reflecting on the nature of the, hel- uh, the hindrances as 
um, you know, multiple, but caused by multiple causes and conditions and reflecting on their karmic, you know, imprint and their karmic results will, you know, help us set an intention to let them go. And then finally, when we just can't, you know, things are just too much and they're just overwhelming, we can go back to just simple counting the breath go back to trying to increase our mindfulness, go back to counting, you know, to the simplest practice. You know, Joseph has his little, you've seen him do it, right? You know, he'll just have a little fake water pistol that he'll think up in his mind and he'll just shoot all of these negative thoughts that he can't get rid of with the water pistol. And somehow that helps. We all have our methods. We have to figure out what works for us. So that was abandoning unwholesome states. So the next one, of course, is is um, developing developing wholesome states that have not yet arisen, and we've gotten excellent training in that. Of course, that is. Uh, uh, doing the Brahma-vihara practice to develop benevolence in our minds and um, to do metta practice to develop compassion. You know, we can open to our own suffering and to other suffering, and oftentimes opening to that is the cause of such pain, but it can actually be the cause of compassion to arise, and compassion feels good. Compassion is a really wholesome response to opening to our own pain and others. So practicing, uh, you know, doing compassion practice. Um, Sympathetic joy or appreciative joy. You know, we could be happy 100% of the time if we could train our minds and hearts, train, you know, our minds and hearts to take joy in other people's pleasure. You know, oftentimes something good happens to a friend of ours and, you know, we're just racked with jealousy and, like, wishing that things weren't, weren't, you know, so good for this other person. And it could be, you know, the source of great joy and appreciative, you know, supportive joy. You know, we could take great delight in good things happening to our family and friends or to even anyone, you know, I know, uh, for example, James was watching the foot, the basketball game. He was so happy because <laughs> somebody made 25 points, I think, in a short amount of time. <laughs> he was really blissed out. <laughs> he was having appreciative joy. <laughs> so uh, some other ways to, um, to develop... Um, positive mind states that haven't arisen. One thing is to, and you know, one practice that I've really loved is I was pretty much involved with, with um, James's Appreciative Joy course. And we know, you know, from neuropsychology, from actually, um, from, yeah, from neuropsychology that our, in, our inclination is to be much more aware of negative events in our lives, negative uh, uh, stressful events in our heart and mind and in our environment than we are of positive things. And that makes uh, total sense. Um, you know, evolutionary psychology tells us we had to be that way because we had to be careful of the saber-toothed tiger that was in the bushes, right? So we're much more aware of negative things in the environment. And we tend to not notice when positive things are there. And uh, one way to uh, maintain positive states and to increase positive states, to um, Uh, motivate positive states to arise that haven't arisen and to maintain positive states. The um, 
uh, third and fourth uh, right effort is to just be aware when these positive states are in our mind. And we're at that stage at the retreat right now. You know, we're, uh, we've gotten to the stage at the retreat where, you know, the hindrances, you know, you can think of the analogy that we're at the beach and the, hindr- the hindrances are the breakers, right? And we're swimming past the breakers and the hindrances, we're getting past them and past them. And then when we actually get past the breakers and get out to the, to the uh, really um, peaceful waters, that's when the seven factors of awakening start showing up. And it's really important for us to know them, to see them when they arise. Um, I've had interviews with some of you where I've talked about, you know, all of a sudden there's joy in our mind. You know, there's joy. We start telling each other little jokes. We, we, we start telling ourselves jokes, right? Or, you know, we see something arising in our minds and it's like the most hilarious thing that we've ever seen. You know, even sometimes the hindrances or the ways that we're thinking about things, they'll be just such a funny, you know, they'll really crack us up. And that's joy in the mind. That's actually one of the seven factors of awakening. And it's important to see that and to feel that. How does that feel in the mind and heart? And how does that feel in the body? So. I think I'm missing one of my pages. Oh. That's not it. <laughs> so, uh, preventing, abandoning, preventing, and then promoting. Well, what I do have here are some excellent, um, uh, I'm almost out of time anyway, some excellent advice from uh, one of our favorite Sayadaw, Sayadaw Utejaniya. Uh, he has a wonderful daily practice advice that he sends out that many of you probably get. And I actually uh, collected all of the ones on right effort. So I'm going to share some of his great teachings with you. Uh, Saida Utejaniya says that one of our reflections might be, right effort is effort with wisdom. So it is with wisdom. Because... Where there is wisdom, there is interest. That's interesting, right? Where there is wisdom, there is interest. The, the desire to know something is wisdom at work. Being mindful is not difficult, but it's difficult to, continuous, to be continuously aware. For that, you need right effort. But it does not require a great deal of energy. It's relaxed perseverance in reminding yourself to be aware. When you are aware, wisdom unfolds naturally, and there is still more interest. So it's relaxed, but it is reminding yourself to come back again and again and again, and not with a lot of striving effort. You know, that's another thing in our meditation practice. Um, uh, Some people say, or, you know, my teacher says that, one of the um, one of the things that we continually check in with is if we're over efforting or under efforting. It's always something that we can check in with. Are we striving? Are we trying to make something happen with our conceptual mind? Do, you know, is there greed in the mind? Do we want something to be present that isn't there? Or if there's something there, do we have aversion to try to get rid of it? Are we trying to get rid of it? Are we, you know, just striving for something else? Or are we just watching what's happening and letting intuitive awareness really take control? Uh, Saito Utejaniya says, learning to watch all the defilements every time they come up is renunciation. It is a, it is a watering the seeds of renunciation. You can make an effort not to indulge in them. And we need to do that. When our thoughts get crazy, you know, we need to renounce them and get back to to um, watering the seeds of uh, wise attention. Just a few more here. I love this one. 
If you make an effort with chanda, and chanda is the Pali word for wise desire. So there is such a thing as wise desire. Desire for spiritual growth. You will not suffer and the mind will become powerful. When you succeed, you will not feel elated and it will not feed your ego. And when you don't succeed, you won't feel upset. Isn't that beautiful? That says that there is a desire for what we're doing that doesn't come out of the conceptual mind. It doesn't come out of ego. It comes out of intuitive awareness. Chanda, this desire for spiritual growth, uh, a desire for wisdom and awakening, comes out of intuitive awareness. And maybe one more. I love this one. Don't pay too much attention to the experiences you have during meditation, but do make an effort to keep watching the mind. If your attention is more in the mind, you will more easily notice whenever any form of greed or aversion sneaks in. And again, you know, that is that it's not really about the object that we're looking at, it's about the attitude of our mind towards that object. Right? Are we accepting it? Are we okay with it? Are we just trying to extract the wisdom of seeing it clearly? Or are we aversive or greedy or deluded in that moment? You know, it's the, the mind, the quality of the mind that's holding that object that we're really interested in. And that's right effort. Looking at the quality of the mind in relation to the object that's arising and passing away. So there's a lot to uh, lot to do about the six, the six path factor, right effort. And you have uh, three and a half weeks or two months to work on it. Isn't that wonderful? That makes me happy just thinking about it. Let's sit for a minute. May we all strengthen the four right efforts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.